G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Now, folks, I got a bunch of notes written down here, and I, I don't know where this is going to go because this is so close to my heart. What is Jesus trying to teach us in Matthew 15? He's trying to show us that the gospel is for all people, and the people that you think are too far from God to be reached, God is pursuing them. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill and this is Today with Jeff Vines. Now, Pastor Jeff loves to take a fresh look at Bible passages that pump him up. In this new Pumped series, Pastor Jeff is reviewing sections of Matthew chapter 15 and Revelation chapter 20. In this message, he's talking about the faith of the Canaanite woman, the deeper meaning in her exchange with Jesus and what it means for us in our culture today. Let's begin today's message as we start looking at Matthew 15. We hope this message pumps you up too. In your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Uh, And and I, I don't think there's a passage that pumps me up anymore than this one. Now, obviously, the gospel passages, the the crucifixion, the atonement for our sins is pretty motivational. But as far as the vision that God has given our church, as far as the direction we are going, I'm not sure there's a passage of scripture that pumps me up more than this one. Matthew chapter 15, uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, is a narrative that is probably one of the most difficult New Testament, or at least in the book of, in the Gospels, narratives to understand. Scholars have debated it for years. I want to read it to you. This is where it really comes in handy if you're looking at a Bible, or at least look at the Scripture. I want to read it to you and explain what's happening here, and then tell you why it was so life-changing for me once I understood it, and then how years later, God just put his hand on my shoulder and said, that's what you're going to do for me, Okay? Here's the passage. Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are two cities on the Mediterranean, Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. It's where Jesus and the disciples would go for rest and relaxation. When they wanted to get out of of the hustle and bustle of the crowds and people chasing Jesus wherever he went for healing or for teaching, he and the disciples would put a hat and sunglasses on and go up to Tyre and Sidon, disguise themselves a little bit, and attempt to get away from the crowd. Now, Josephus tells us, the first century historian, that the people of Tyre and Sidon were our bitterest enemies. The Israelites hated the people who lived here, detested them, thought they were at the very bottom of the spiritual barrel. They're the kind of people that are so far from God, don't waste your time because they can't be reached. 
Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. So now we're told a woman who lives in that vicinity, only she's identified as a Canaanite. If you know anything about the Canaanite people, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, the Canaanites were there. They were filled with idolatry. They are the ones basically through whom the sacrificing your children on the, on the altar of Molech began, where you would sacrifice your newborn child to the gods in hopes for prosperity and success, which made the Israelites hate them that much more. This woman from Tyre and Sidon, who's a Canaanite, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, son of David. She calls him Curios, Lord, master, teacher. And she's done a little bit of homework because she refers to him as son of David, which means this is a messianic term. So she knows something about the Jews waiting for the coming Messiah. And she's identifying Jesus as that person, that Messiah. She says, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. As any parent knows, you'll do whatever it takes to rescue one of your children, right? You'll do whatever, you will die for them. You'll take a bullet for them. You will give your life up in order to save the life of a child. Let me tell you something. It's even more intense when you have grandchildren, isn't it? I look at my little granddaughter, Ada. Sometimes I'll take her to coffee clutch and get her a hot chocolate and a muffin so she can go back and drive her mother crazy with the sugar rush. <laughs> Amen. That's what we grandparents do. And sometimes I'll just sit and look at her and I'll think, man, how can God give me such a wonderful gift? You'll do anything for your children, grandchildren, but notice how Jesus responds. He answers her not a word. There's no trick in the language here. Jesus ignores her. That's what it means. In fact, it literally means Jesus just turns away and moves away from her. Now, that's not very typical of Jesus, so already we have a problem. So his disciples came to him, that is Jesus, and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. The disciples are a group, they're a bunch of compassionate people, aren't they? Here's this woman who's desperate, her daughter's dying, and they say, we don't have time for no Gentile female riffraff who's from Canaan. Send her away. She cries out after us. And that's a bit grandiose, isn't it? She's not crying out after us. She's crying out after Jesus. Verse 24, he answered, and he looks at the disciples, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. So first Jesus ignores her pain, and then he basically says this, I was not sent for your kind. I wasn't sent for people like you, which makes no sense because he spent almost half a day, or at least it appears, with a woman at a well who was a Samaritan. He healed the Roman centurion's son or servant, and Rome ruled Israel with an iron fist. So what do you mean you weren't sent for her kind? Verse 25, the woman is not deterred. She came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. The Greek word is proskuneo, which is why some translations will say that she came and worshiped him. It's a word that means you get down on your hands and knees. Sometimes you kiss the person's feet. Nevertheless, you are worshiping, you're paying honor to them. You're humbling yourself. And in verse 26, look at what Jesus says. His third reply, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> Here's what Jesus does. Number one, he ignores her. Number two, I wasn't sent for your kind. And three, he calls her a dog. The worst thing you could ever call anybody in Jesus' day was a dog. A dog. And he says to her, you know, it's not right to take the children. That is, it's not right to take the children of God, the Israelites' bread, the value, the bread of life, and toss it to you dogs. Man, that is, that's tough going. 
Can you imagine why scholars have had a little difficult time with this passage? It is Walter Winkus, who is a great theologian, that dissects this passage for us. And he tells us that one of the things Jesus likes to do is teach by method or by experience rather than just dispensing information. Anybody who's been, well, especially to seminary, but if you've been to graduate school, graduate school is very uh, different than undergraduate school. You, you have more experiences when you're in graduate school. You have debate. You have tension. The professor will get you in situations so that you might discover what your beliefs, your worldview actually looks like. And so Walter Winkus talks about the teaching method called deliberately induced frustration. It's where Jesus will frustrate you to try to get you to open up within your own assumptions. So he'll put the disciples out on a lake knowing the storm's coming to see how they respond. He'll tell Philip and Andrew, go feed these 5,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves to see how they'll respond. Hoping they will say, Jesus, we can't do this, but you can, right? But they don't. There's no need to fear. There's a storm, but Jesus is watching over us. But they always fail the test and probably we would too. So what's happening in this passage is Jesus is playing a little game. He's bantering with the disciples while probably keeping a close eye on the woman. He's hoping that he knows what the disciples think. There are these groups of people over here. They don't deserve to hear the gospel. Or if they did, or if they heard the good news, they're so far from God. They're at the very bottom of the spiritual battle uh, barrel. They are the enemies of God. They're our bitter enemies. So don't waste your time. They're too far to be reached. So Jesus, knowing that's their theology, puts them in an experience, hoping that someone will come and take up for the lady. So when he ignores her, he's hoping one of the disciples will say, come on, Jesus. I mean, all right, I know that she's a Samaritan, but you can't ignore There's This woman's in pain. They don't do it. They don't, instead, they say, Jesus, send her away. We don't have any time for any Gentile female riffraff. But Jesus doesn't send her away. Instead, he says, yeah, guys, you're right. I wasn't sent for her kind, was I? Hoping that one of them say, what do you mean her kind? Jesus, that's a bit harsh, but still nobody defends her. And so the third time he finally goes all the way and he says, not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the doggies. Now he does something in that little verse that we're going to come back to at the end of the passage that will make some of this clear. Nevertheless, Jesus knows the disciples need remedial help. Now folks, I got a bunch of notes written down here and I, I don't know where this is going to go <laughs> because this is so close to my heart. What is Jesus trying to teach us in Matthew 15? He's trying to show us that the gospel is for all people. And the people that you think are too far from God to be reached, God is pursuing them. And the minute you think that you're better than somebody else, or that only a certain class or group of people belong in church, the minute we've lost the plot, if Jesus was willing to go this far, think about it. He was willing to go so far at the risk of hurting this woman in order to teach the disciples a valuable lesson. If Jesus is willing to risk that, to do it here in a place that I don't see him doing that anywhere else in the Gospels, it means this lesson must be pretty important. Remember I asked you last week, have you seen the Jesus revolution? Man, you got to see that. You got to go see it if you haven't seen it. It's the story of Calvary Chapel in Southern California. It's the story of Chuck Smith and the hippie movement. And the hippies weren't allowed in church. People were terrified of them. They dressed funny. You know, they might be high. They might be stoned. 
They don't know how to act in church. When they come, they come in barefoot. They don't wear shoes and it stains the new carpet. And so I'm watching this movie and when I'm watching it and I see the tears in, is it Kelsey Grammer that plays the role? I see the tears in his eyes, supposed to be Chuck Smith. And when I was watching that scene, I was thinking, man, this could be me. Is God saying something to me? And he tries, the movie tries to explain to you that what were the hippies of the 60s and 70s doing? We had kicked God out of the schools or beginning to. We'd kicked God out, the scripture out, prayer out, all of that. So they were looking for a transcendent experience. They were lost. So they turned to psychedelic experiences. They turned to drugs. Maybe if we take drugs and we go out and live in these communes, maybe we'll find something that we can't find anywhere else. Maybe we'll find ourselves. Maybe we'll find God. And the reason I say that right now, look at where we are in culture. Is it really any different? Why do you think, why do you think we're having these identity crises? Why do you think our, our kids have grown up in a world where God's not an option? Out of the schools, the Bible's out of the schools, God is out of the schools. He, suddenly the church and God are the bad people. So what hope do they have? What are they going to do? When you take God out, they didn't grow up in the culture that us old guys did. When you take God out of all of that, what's going to happen? They're going to look for hope. They're going to look for peace. They're going to look for the transcendent. And the same thing that happened then is happening now, only we've moved. Actually, I believe that it began there but notice, in the Jesus revolution, not all the hippies got saved, but there was a revolution, but some still ignored. But there's always a remnant. There's always a group of people who are searching. And what I'm trying to tell you is this. When you get angry at what's going on in culture in our world, I understand that. There should be a type of anger toward things that are sacred that are violated. But understand what's really going on you got a whole group of young people who are enamored in this culture with sex and pornography. And in their minds, the way you connect with the transcendent is through a romantic solution. If I can find that one, if I can be valued by the way I look, the way I dress, how popular the, fo the followers I have on social media, it's still just a different version of the 60s and 70s. They're just trying to find a way to have meaning and purpose and significance in the absence of God. So as I look at all of this, I, I ask two questions, and I never get to ask these because when we've done this passage in the past, I just leave you with the idea we should be reaching out to people. Okay. But we never talk about the elephant in the room. And here's the first one. Who are the hippies of our day? <laughs> what did the hippies of the 60s and 70s believe? Let me give you the quote out of the Jesus Revolution. The psychedelic experience is a confrontation with the divine. It is a spiritual awakening. You come back and define God, you are reborn. Man, doesn't that sound like a baptism? They're looking for the transcendent. They're looking for God. So they think by having the psychedelic experience, they'll come into contact with God and be reborn. So as you look around our world right now, what I'm trying to say to you is that I know the church, if, if you make the mistake of thinking that gay community, lesbian community, transgender community, that they're at the bottom of the spiritual barrel and somehow you're better than them and you cast them to the side 
and you think, okay, you're so far from God, you cannot be reached, and there's no passion in you, and you don't think God can reach all people, and somehow you close your doors to anybody that's not like you, do you know what you're doing? You're violating Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, and following. In the movie, The Jesus Revolution, Lonnie comes to Chuck Smith and basically says this. He says, these people are searching, but your doors aren't open to them. You've shut them out. And Chuck goes to his congregation and he says to the people, come in. He tells the hippies, come on in. You're welcome. And when they come in, they all sit on this side and all the church people sit on that side. He wants to bring them in just like Jesus, but just like the disciples, the conservative people, the people who've been in church for a while want to keep them out. And as a result of him inviting them in, a revolution takes place. Thousands upon thousands get saved or baptized in this little cove down in, I don't know where it is, but it's somewhere, (laughs) somewhere south of here. (laughs) So the first question, who are the hippies of our day? And then can we, can we all at least agree that Christianity is not only salvation, it's salvation, but is it not an invitation to the broken more than anything for those who are broken, those who are looking for a transcendent experience in connecting with God. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark two seventeen. on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners, the sinners. There's some of you parents right now that think your children are too far from God to be rescued. You are so wrong. You are so wrong. They're looking for a place open to them. Open. So the second question is, how shall they hear without a preacher then? Who are the hippies of our day? We know who they are. Let me just pause here just for a moment because I don't want to be misunderstood here. Can I tell you something? It was the Christians and their promiscuity who started this mess. See, before you get down the road of sexual immorality, you got to start somewhere. And when the church stopped taking sexual purity seriously, the sex was between a man and a woman in marriage. Then it opens the door for promiscuity. Then what happened? Affairs, adultery, divorce. And then you keep pushing the barriers. Next thing you know, well, that's not working. Let's try same sex. That's not working. Let's try transgender. You have no idea where this will lead. We're all sinners, aren't we? Every single one of us. And the Bible tells us that the church is to be a place where the broken can be healed, mended, put back together. And then the second question, how shall they hear the message without a preacher? Lonnie, who represented the hippies, and I know there's a backstory to that too. Maybe that's another sermon. But Lonnie comes to Chuck Smith. I want you to hear, I've got a quote here. Here's what he says. I know we must seem, he's talking about the hippies. I know we must seem pretty strange to you. But if you look a little deeper, with love, you will see a bunch of kids who are searching for all the right things in all the wrong places. 
They are sheep without a shepherd chasing hard after the lies. And the trouble is, you people, you Christians reject them. So I ask you, pastor, how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? We can only walk through doors open to us and your church, well, that's a door that is shut. When Lonnie tells Chuck Smith that, you know what Chuck Smith does? He opens the doors and the hippies come. And the first meeting is with his elders when they say, we cannot have this because they're coming in here with their bare feet and they're making the carpet dirty. They're ruining the shag carpet. And Chuck Smith says, oh, we got to save that carpet. We got to save the carpet. (laughs) It's hilarious, isn't it? We can think like that. So what does Chuck Smith do? Did you see the next scene? So the next weekend when all the hippies are coming to church, he meets them out the door and he washes all their feet before they come in. And it starts a movement. This is not a a fairy story. This is not fairyland. This is not myth. This happened right here in Southern California. That revival that I'm always talking about, it happened before. And it happened. It happened when when we recognize nobody's too far from God that they can't come home. Now, here's here's something we don't talk about, though. Here's the next thing. If it's true that Chuck Smith gets up into this church, and I don't don't mean to value Chuck Smith so much. Just the story is about Chuck Smith, and I'm enamored with it. In a defining moment, when he realized what God was calling him to do, he stood before his church, and here's what he said to the hippies. He looked them in the eye, and he said, this place, it is yours. If you feel you're an outcast, join us here. If you feel misunderstood and judged, this is where you belong. If you feel ashamed, trapped, here you will find forgiveness. The door is open all the time for you. And then remember what Lonnie does? He leans forward and says, Pastor, you're going to need a bigger church. <laughs> and the Jesus Revolution began in Time Magazine. Time Magazine. Time ma- Front page. 1971. Jesus is alive and well, living in the radical spiritual fervor of a growing number of young Americans who have proclaimed an extraordinary religious revolution in Jesus' name. It's happened. Now, here's the irony. Okay, let's have a little laugh. All those hippies that got saved are now the older people in churches that want to keep the new hippies out. (laughs) Isn't that, don't you think that's funny, man? Isn't that ironic? You mean, you, dude, you were a hippie, you got saved, and now you're the conservative guy. Just sitting there thinking, we can't let those people in. But you were those people. That's the way humanity goes. It's the way it is. I can promise you this. Listen, and I'll clarify some things here because I know you got questions, but here's the thing. I guarantee you the time is coming, and I don't know when, but the time will come. You ask me my opinion, I think it's before we die, but the time is going to come when this whole generation that is off on this tangent of transgenderism. I'm going to identify something today, but I'm going to be something different tomorrow. Who's trying to have a physical psychedelic experience to connect with the transcendent. The time is going to come when they're going to be empty. They're going to realize, man, all these things we were told, they're not working. And the church, if it has kept its doors open, the prodigals will come home. Now, it doesn't mean that every hippie is going to get saved. It doesn't mean that some are not going to hate us and militantly refuse us. That's always going to be the case. But if you use your head and your conversation is seasoned with salt and you love people the way Jesus loved them, when that emptiness occurs, if the church has left its doors open and say, you're welcome here, nobody's perfect here, the prodigals will come home. 
You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. The Gospel is offensive. It just is. It's a level of purity that none of us can measure up to. But the gospel of grace is the good news. That's why it's called good news. So yes, I'm never gonna stop talking about right and wrong, purity, impurity. I will never water it down. But when we start doing it from the perspective of we rather than you, then it's covered with grace and grace comes shining through. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.